Hello, and welcome back to the Joint Venture Podcast, Inspiration Insights, our weekly roundup of the best of Inspiration's green energy and infrastructure coverage. My name is Oliver Carr. Thank you for all the feedback from our last episode, podcasts at inspiration.com if you want to get involved, uh, or you can just reach out to any of our guests today, which this week are Robert Leeming, Head of News. Hi, Oliver. And Chendwa Chintu, our Energy and Infrastructure Analyst. Hey, guys. Glad to be here. In this episode, we are going to be taking a look at the latest news, focusing on the offshore and floating wind uh, sector. We're also going to be taking a quick look at nuclear energy's future in the UK and how infrastructure funds are responding to recessionary pressures. But as ever, we're starting off with the news desk. Rob, what have you got for us this time? Well, thanks, Oliver. Happy New Year. Happy New Year, indeed. After a quiet start of the year on the offshore front this week, uh, there's been a flood of uh, deals um, announced in the space. By far the most significant deal this week was Copenhagen Infrastructure Partners announcing that it's taking a 50% share of uh, Norwegian renewable developer Statcraft's offshore wind portfolio in Ireland. The uh, portfolio has an uh, expected capacity of 2.2 gigawatts and includes um, four early to uh, mid-stage offshore wind projects um, that are going to be built in the Irish Sea. And it's quite significant, really. I mean, this is two huge actors in the uh, renewable space coming together uh, like this um, in the Irish uh, sector and, uh, you know, proving that he has a lot of potential. Um, It's the kind of deal that will really uh, concentrate minds um, that the sector is entering the the big time with our big investors and big developers, uh, proven developers, lining up to get involved. Yeah, we've recently covered, I think, uh, was it Bewa who moved into Ireland just before the new year? Yeah, exactly. Uh, There's a lot of energy that seems to be focusing on that particular region. Yeah, and these these are... you know, companies that are proven to be, um, you know, good at developing offshore projects. So it looks like the Irish market is finally going to, you know, take off big time. Well, we'll look out for that. Could be a big standout of 2023. Uh, what else do we have in offshore wind? And, uh, well, now, well, turning to floating wind now, um, in in Italy, uh, Simply Blue Group announced a deal this week with um, Plenitude, which is ENI's renewable arm, uh, to develop a portfolio of floating wind projects off Italy. Um, at the minute, it's thought that the portfolio contains around two projects, um, which are in the early phases of development at the moment, one off the coast of Calabria and um, another one off the coast of Apulia. Quite big projects as well, um, one having 1.3 gigawatts and the other one having 1.1 gigawatts. Okay, I think I'm seeing the theme here. We've got two massive companies once again coming together in the offshore wind space. Exactly. Uh, just in the, like you say in the previous story, two big companies, proven developer in, in the field, um, Simply Blue have done a lot of work on floating, and um, an oil major getting involved in the market is again going to concentrate mines. It's um, by any yardstick a, a big step forward. Simply Blue has got to bring technical know-how and lived experience of, of developing projects to the partnership, while Plenitude, as I've said, is backed by an all-major, so that's going to be plenty of cash to keep the project going. Um, but having said all that, floating technology is still, as I've you know, said a few times, largely unproven at scale at the moment. And just at the end of last year, there was a project backed by Shell, which failed, um, and the reason was tech concerns, apparently. 
So just because you've got the big money backing, it's no yes. guarantee your project is going to see it's going to work. Journey's end. You know, which is very important to remember. But ultimately, obviously, the, the feeling is that floating is going to hit the big time. Well, it's a cautionary tale. What else it have is, we got today? But then life is a cautionary tale. Um, the next one um, is another floating development, actually. Um, this time in France, Ocean Winds and, and Banque des Territoires, excuse my French, um, is uh, teaming up to bid in the upcoming um, French offshore uh, wind tender the results of which are due I think um, at some point near the end of the year um, it's the AO6 tender which is set to offer floating capacity floating capacity to developers in the Mediterranean um, uh, these two companies are going to bid to develop a 250 megawatt project and um, um, they're going to join a few other bidders that were that have come out um, over the last couple of months. I think the other one is RWE, um, and this is interesting. Well, you know, it's it's the French government finally looking like they're going to take some serious action to get the renewables program back on track because it's been a bit up and down. It's not been as successful as the as the British one so far. And if you want to hear more about France's uh, recent political struggles with improving renewable developments, listen to our previous episode. Yes, we've already been there. So, um, yeah, look look back. And there was a, a written feature as well, written on that too. So, um, interesting topic. And now one more, one more for you. Um, this one, back in the UK, um, Orsted won the backing of South Norfolk Council to develop a, an onshore battery storage project uh, to support its upcoming 2.8 gigawatt Horn C3 offshore wind scheme, which is going to be developing um, off the coast of, I think it's Yorkshire, but the, the, the project's going to come onshore in Norfolk. Um, so the utility-scale battery um, that's going to collect the power has been awarded planning permission by the council, despite objections from local residents. And that's the the key point here, the fact that a council has approved this despite local objections. Um, you know, councils often fall into line behind NIMBYism, not wanting to risk losing the support of constituents and thus votes. Uh, but here, they, they've moved ahead regardless, putting the project before anything else. If only more councils acted like this, you would see a lot more renewables projects being developed in the UK and in Europe, where lots are being held up by bureaucracy and red tape. That is very interesting. So, as we've talked about before, this uh, change of policy from the top of government on uh, onshore wind in particular, about yes. changing the mood music about how easy it is to get permission through, mm. is that kind of, can we see this as sort of decision making from the top filtering down onto the lower levels of government? It does have, have an effect, certainly, but obviously at a local level, there's a whole range of opinions, a lot of them anti-renewable energy, obviously, depending on the party and control of, of the of the um, of the council um, and you know there's a lot of local arguments that, that you know we don't know about and national politics does, doesn't know about um, and it all comes down to you know what's going on in people's backyards and whether they want it or not well maybe what's going on in people's backyards is they're noticing their energy bills are an awful lot higher than they used to be and think maybe this green stuff has something in it after all Point. thank you Rob now we're going to turn to how the infrastructure funds of uh, Europe and the wider world are dealing with potential recessionary economies. Now, Chendwa has been doing some research on this. Thanks for coming on. Glad to be here, um, Oliver. So why are we interested in tracking these funds' activity? Well, these funds are 
pools of private capital, essentially. And um, a lot of these funds are managed by um, private investment firms and private equity firms. And it's interesting to see their strategies year on year, um, depending on what the economic climate is. And through Funds Live, um, our proprietary funds tracker, we've been tracking funds over the years now. And the first thing that's striking is the volume of capital that has closed year on year. Um, our recent analysis piece showed that in 2020, um, there were a total of 40 infrastructure funds that closed for a total of 80 billion US dollars. And last year in 2022, um, there were 41 funds that closed for a total of 152 billion US dollars. And looking into the data a bit more, we see that the strategy that these funds are taking is very defensive. So they're looking to invest in more utilities, more water, gas, and especially electricity. Those pieces of core infrastructure which are seen as safe havens in times of economic strife. Indeed, indeed. And that's boding well for renewables especially um, because we see... um, these funds investing a lot in renewables. Last year, our subsidy-free deal of the year um, was Project Viati, which was advised on by um, Augusta and Co. And 80% of the financing from that project came from AIP's Infrastructure 2 Fund, uh, which closed last year. And also interesting for you, uh, there were two funds last year which specifically focus on the green hydrogen economy, which closed. One was CIP's 3 billion green hydrogen fund, and the other was HY24's 2 billion green hydrogen infrastructure fund. So what we're noticing is a lot of these funds are targeting energy um, infrastructure projects, and renewable energy is is a hot topic and seems to be a safe haven uh, for investment. And that is interesting for our market because that's a lot of capital for us. Those funds seem like they're somewhat bucking the trend because, you know, hydrogen is obviously has a huge amount of promise, but it's certainly not seen as a safe investment yet, at least not for your big institutional funds. Perhaps, perhaps not. But the promise is there and the promise of hydrogen being a key component in supply chains is there. And just touching on what what Rob covered in the news earlier um, about a lot of activity in offshore wind um, and what you also touched on about high electricity prices. You know, we see manufacturers in the Euro, in, in, on the mainland like BASF um, choosing to move to the United States uh, because of electricity prices and um, the attractiveness of the subsidy-laden um, uh, IRA. And that essentially opens up a lot of opportunity for other industries, say hydrogen, to step in place and cement itself in, in the supply chain and and econo- economies of, of renewable energy. I completely agree with you there. The government support, particularly from the uh, US at the moment, is what's attracting so much capital to the market. So where, apart from the US specifically, are we seeing some of these funds move their money? So a lot of the funds are primarily focused on North America because a lot of the private equity firms are in that region and they know that region. Um, But a lot of funds that close in Europe um, and in Asia have a global focus on energy projects um, and also in Europe and a big chunk in Asia. And of all, there are three standout funds, uh, one of which was KKR's 17 billion Global Infrastructure Investor 4 Fund, which focuses specifically on digital infrastructure. We talk about a lot about digital infra and, and its role in the energy transition, so that's uh, very on point for them. Um, and it's an opportunistic fund 
So that's focusing on on new greenfield digital infra- infrastructure projects. Uh, there's also Brookfield Asset Management's $15 billion uh, Brookfield Global Transition Fund, uh, and this primarily focuses on uh, global renewables. Um, so that's uh, very interesting for people uh, looking to invest in you know solar wind across the globe. And I squared capital's $15 billion um, I uh, squared capital global infrastructure three fund, which focuses on uh, renewables and digital infra. Um, so just from the from these three funds, it, it echoes the trend again of of strategy being um, core infrastructure and core infrastructure including renewables. Okay, that's a fantastic outlook. So you've mentioned some uh, some of the sectors that these standout funds are interested in. Can you paint a picture of kind of the broader scope of which sectors are getting the most volume? Uh, well, as of last year, which is uh, sort of what we we have looked in into the most, uh, the sectors getting the most the most volume um, are uh, water infrastructure projects, s- uh, sanitation, uh, sewage treatment, um, and piping infrastructure, general utilities. Uh, that focus on not only renewables but also oil and gas and, and and the usual shebang, and creeping into that a lot more is offshore wind especially, and so that's very interesting for us. Thank you very much, Chenva. That's uh, an excellent review of 2022's activity. Last time you were on, you uh, wanted to make some predictions about, about 2023 as regards PPAs. Do you feel like you want to make any predictions about what happens in the funds world this year? Anything we can read into the data? What what we have learned is that, you know, if a fund manager is looking to raise funds for infrastructure in this day and age, even in what we are looking at, m- what might be a very strong economic recession, then they're able to raise the capital they want, be it $2 billion, be it $17 billion. So there is appetite for infrastructure still. Um, and that is interesting for our industry. Um, so if there are people out there looking for financing for their project, uh, be it merchant, be it through several tranches of, of debt funding, then there are people willing to back your projects. Um, and so we also expect 2023 to be a good year. Um, if it will be at the volumes of 2022, I'm not sure, but it will definitely be a good year for fundraising. Thank you so much, Janva. Just before we wrap up, I just think we should have a quick look at the UK's nuclear situation. Now, I'm taking the opportunity to talk about this out of the uh, Skidmore report, which was published last week, Rob, I think uh, we've uh, you've yes. mentioned this one in your work as well. Yeah, it was a very interesting report actually, and um, it was received, um, I don't know, differently in different quarters, is what I'll say. Yes. So, for those who don't know, this is a report that was put out by uh, the Right Honourable uh, Chris Skidmore MP, a Conservative MP in the government, who was uh, who was commissioned to write about the mission for Net Zero. And he has released this quite candid report about the many sectors. And I'm going to f- focus in on uh, what's been going on in the nuclear world. So, first of all, the big story of UK nuclear in the last few years has all been about Sizewell C, one big nuclear plant which has been causing an awful lot of trouble for uh, the government and for its backers. So where we are on that uh, at the moment is that... It's funded by China. No, it's not. Is it Isn't it? Not anymore. I don't know. I've lost track of what's going on there. In November of 2022, the UK invested £679 million into Sizewell C, which was buying a 50% stake, with the other 50% then being owned by EDF. They bought out the uh, China General Nuclear Power Group, uh, 
who exited from the project, including the buyout costs. And this is uh, quite significant because a few months earlier, the project was given uh, final backing and approval from the government. So, so far as we're all aware, it's now actually happening. And it will generate 7% of the UK's uh, electricity demand. That's 3.26 gigawatts of firm power in its location in Suffolk, which should be enough to generate for 6 million homes over a lifespan of what could be up to 50 years. All very good news. However, this has, uh, I think, eaten up a lot of the oxygen around the nuclear debate in the UK. For example, small modular reactors were meant to be the big stories of the last few years and has been elsewhere. But in the UK, this technology has, I think, been stalling a little bit in the agenda. So for those who don't know, SMRs, small modular reactors, are nuclear reactors just like uh, the larger ones, but are meant to be made smaller, no more than 300 megawatts, much more cheaply. And the idea is that you can roll these things off the production line and then avoid all the nebulous and ever-growing costs of large bespoke nuclear power stations. Now, Rolls-Royce SMR, a subdivision of Rolls-Royce, has been uh, championing this work in the UK. And they reckon that they can make this work for uh, around about 40 to 60 pounds per megawatt hour, which is approximately comparable to um, offshore wind. And as it says on their website, will be clean, affordable energy for all. So there's a lot of reasons why the UK is uh, pursuing this. The government announced a, another £210 million investment, uh, which is going to be matched by the private investment, I think mainly from Rolls-Royce. Uh, this was announced last year and is going to form part of the, well, what was originally the Prime Minister's 10-point plan for a green industrial revolution. Oh, I, re I remember that. that. One, that I one, remember that. That one was uh, a Boris Johnson uh, one the prime minister's yeah. changed, but they've kept the name the same. I was going to say I remember Boris Johnson waxing lyrical about about those uh, nuclear reactors. And the idea behind this move is that it brings more energy security, that wonderful buzzword in the British government at the moment, to the country. So the idea would be that these things were produced in the UK. Uh, according to Rolls Royce, up to eighty percent of the value chain could be entirely enclosed within the United Kingdom. And then these become export products with memorandums of understanding already being in place with countries such as Turkey, Estonia and the Czech Republic. OK, so that's the plan. What Skidmore said about it, his uh, report out last week uh, criticised many of the areas of uh, the UK's uh, nuclear policy. He had a few points on this. So one of the things that uh, is meant to be happening in the near future is Great British Nuclear which is a government vehicle for building up a pipeline of nuclear projects in the UK of all sorts. The exact timing and delivery of these projects is a little bit nebulous at this time. Well, surprise, surprise. The, the recommendation of the report is that that is set up early in 2023. So I think that's code for ASAP to bring a bit of certainty to the market. And that a clear roadmap is set out in this year with clear targets. And that's one other thing about the uh, current strategy is that nuclear power is being funded, but that unlike renewables sectors, there are not clear government targets for ramping up production. And nebul it's nebulous things like this, which will give you know investors in these small modular reactors perhaps the confidence to move forward when the technology gets there. Because that's another thing that we're kind of betting on in, in this scenario, betting on the future technology's delivery. One of the selling points of SMR is revolves around the, the, wa the nuclear waste. Um, that's a byproduct of this energy production and that it might be easier to handle. 
because of the design of the reactors being slightly different than a regular sized reactor. However, there have been some reports that say that because there's so many, that there could be so many SMRs around, that the nuclear waste will be just as high level, uh, but being produced at a higher rate. And so the concern with nuclear really isn't can we build it? It's more of can we manage the waste if there's more waste being produced? It's a very good point. And I think that's one thing that uh, it's a a little unusual for us to talk about uh, nuclear. We don't normally cover it uh, because we make a point, uh, as I'm sure you're all aware, of being sustainable in our coverage and covering sustainable things. And the question of whether nuclear power is sustainable or an aid to sustainability is very, I'd say, tricky. I mean, there's, I think nuclear divides a lot of people. I'm, I'm of the mindset that it is this sustainable. Um, it's a non-carbon emitting form of electricity generation um, that is potentially very, that provides potentially very little uh, damage to the environment, provided that nuclear waste is, is dealt with effectively. Um, the issue revolves around nuclear waste and the discourse around nuclear waste. A lot of us are afraid of nuclear waste, but I don't think we should be. I'm pretty afraid of it. If it was in my fridge, I'd be very afraid. I wouldn't if it was held if it was dealt with properly. I'd gladly. I think if it's in my reactor. fridge, but it's not being dealt with properly. As long as it's mean, stored <laughs> properly in the fridge, like in a little zip proof <laughs> bag. Hundred percent, hundred percent, hundred percent, and and that's that's really the big issue. It's like you know, can yeah. we deal with the waste? You're entirely right. It's a bad idea to uh, put nuclear waste where it will be da- potentially dangerous for thousands of years, but it's also a very bad idea to pump CO2 into the atmosphere. It's two bad things. Renewables obviously are the clean answer to both of those questions, but there needs to be, I think most energy analysts will agree, some reliable firm power in the generation, some point to biomass for that, others to tidal or hydroelectric, but I think nuclear power has a role to play, how big we shall see. With the return of Rob this week, we also have the return of our In Other News segment. So, Rob, what have you found on the cutting room floor of the office this week? Well, I want to talk a little bit about about the royal family and not the obvious topic that's been doing the rounds, obviously, over the last couple of weeks. But I want to talk about... Yeah, we're not that kind of podcast. No, thankfully. I want to talk about the king, the great forgotten man in all this. You know, I was reading the other day that he can play the cello. Can he? Impressive, right? I'm impressed by anyone who can play the cello. <laughs> anyway, as you might know, he has a little town that he's built as as part of the Duchy of Cornwall um, in Dorset, and it's called Poundbury. And it's been basically that he, he wanted to build a town that um, uses kind of old um, building skills and old design. A lot of the buildings are kind of Georgian in style. Um, so it's kind of a throwback to how to how towns used to look. Anyway, um, it, it, it's kind of come out in the last few days that there's, there's a, a set of rules and regulations about what you can do with your house when you buy it in Poundbury. And you can't um, have the following things outside. You can't have meter boxes, air extractors, um, dustbins, um, air conditioning systems, burger alarms. And here's the most important thing that I want to highlight. You're not allowed to have solar panels on your house if you live in Poundbury, which to me is double standards because, of course, the, the king, formerly Prince Charles, um, 
was he's, he wants to be seen as being utterly green and um, in favour of uh, kind of saving the planet and renewables and um, organic foods and all that kind of thing. But then his town, you know, if you live in his town, you're not allowed to have um, it's, a solar panel on the roof. It's true. It does seem like a double standard. It but does. There's, um, I don't want to. I don't want to kind of complain against the guy because he can play the cello. <laughs> um, but you know, I wanted to to, to raise it today. So you two are in the loop of what's going on here. Well, thank you. I mean, I guess he's got some uh, plausible deniability at this point, though, doesn't he? Because he, he, it's William that manages the Dutch. Exactly. Now. It's, it's all it's all shifted around now. So really, we should be blaming Prince William. Charles is scot free. He's moved up to Buckingham Palace and is busy signing legislation into law and opening leisure centres. I don't really know what to say about this. No. Is, is the Crown Estate related to the Duchy? No, you see, the Crown Estate, the, the the profits that it makes goes directly to the government, but the profit that the duchy makes goes straight into the pocket of, of the king, or now, of course, Prince William, who is the Duke of Cornwall. His private income, of course. Yeah, exactly. And of course, they, they've swapped now, so the, the king, formerly the Queen, gets the, the Duke, uh, the, the Duchy of Lancaster. You've made me curious now. Not this as may, profitable, this, I this, this may be a model village, but I wonder how much land in the Duchy of Cornwall or the Duchy of York or any of the other royal holdings have renewable developments? I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of farmland, obviously, in, Cor- in, in Cornwall, and a lot of those farmers pay rent to the duchy. And I don't know if there's any kind of uh, stipulation by the duchy that there's, there's got to be particular amounts of land that's, that's dedicated to, to renewables or whatever. I don't know. I'm not sure. That's an, beyond my an pay invest- An investigative journalist piece, Rob? Yes, in, maybe. maybe. And I, I will sell it to The Guardian. Perhaps I would hope you'd give inspiration for scoop. Of course, first I'd offer it to inspiration first. Lovely. <laughs> and that I think is quite enough of that, and it brings us to the end of the episode. Thank you so much for listening. Again, if you want to get in touch, it's podcasts at inspiratia.com or just reach out to any of us online. Thank you once again to my guests, Rob. Thank you. Thanks for the Thank you, Chadwick. Thanks for having me. We'll be back again next week. Goodbye.